Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and there as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away, and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. And as soon as he was approaching, near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. He was going on ahead up to Jerusalem. That's how Luke writes it. And it's very interesting writing. Obviously Luke being the investigative journalist that he was, had talked to those who lived with and walked with and were with Jesus at this time, and something changes here in his ministry, in his pattern. Now he is going on ahead. It's as though the disciples can't even keep up. They're like, Jesus is way out there. He's no longer holding back among the disciples, hanging out with the boys. He's he's no longer in the midst of the crowd, surrounded by the throng. He's leading. He's out in front. And what Luke describes for us here is a determined zeal on the part of Jesus. What Isaiah called the zeal of the Lord of hosts that would accomplish the work of God. This passion, this zeal of Jesus had been escalating for weeks. In fact, if you track through the book of Luke all the way back to the transfiguration... Up in the north of Israel, I believe up on Mount Hermon. And there on the mountain where he was transfigured before the Lord and before the uh, the apostles, Peter, James, and John. Well, after this, immediately after this, it says in Luke 9.51, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. We're told further on in Luke 13, verse 22, he was passing through one, from, through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. At that point, you're in the last six months of Jesus, and it's all dialing down to that great drama that's going to take place at the end of his earthly life. Luke 17, 11, while he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And just before he arrived in Jericho, Luke 18.31, he took the twelve aside and he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. And all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. All the things written through the prophets. The Hebrew prophets. 
Men who had spoken of the coming Messiah 500 years before, 700 years before, 1,000, even 2,000 years prior to Jesus' coming. All of these things, Jesus said, these are going to be fulfilled. And there are specific prophecies that are about to take place before your eyes. They couldn't imagine what those were. Jesus had laid it out for them. You may recall in Luke 18, He said very specifically, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be scourged, I'm going to be crucified, but I will rise again on the third day. And they didn't get it. All these things will be accomplished, He said. He was so determined to see it through. Even knowing at all points bulletin had been put out for His arrest. Jesus was clear on this one. John chapter 11, verse 57 tells us, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. And yet rather going, than going in the opposite direction, Jesus was going on before them. He was on His way going up to Jerusalem. Now I point all that out because you've got to realize, coming into Jerusalem for the last week of His life, Jesus was in complete control. Jesus was orchestrating the whole thing. He organized an uncharacteristically conspicuous reception for His first day. Typically, Jesus was quiet about it. You know, He would heal someone and He'd say, now now go show yourself to the priest and don't tell anybody about this. He he would raise someone from the dead and say, okay, hush, hush, let's not make a big deal about this. It wasn't His time yet. But now, all of a sudden, He organizes the triumphal entry. This is His doing. We call it Palm Sunday. I know it's next week. Big deal. We're going to talk about it this morning because I want to. But in our study through Luke, we now have come to the final week of Jesus and He has the whole thing planned out. Follow this through with me. I want to do the story first, just kind of walk it through and think it through and then I want to go back and and make application for you. So after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples. Now, hold on right there. Bethany and Bethphage are on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. Now, if you can kind of imagine this, if you will, on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives, these villages, you go up the Mount of Olives, over the top, and as you get to the summit of the Mount of Olives, you are now looking out over all of Jerusalem in front of you. Down the Mount of Olives, across the Kedron Valley, and up to the Temple Mount, that's the first thing that meets your eyes when you stand on the Mount of Olives. And then Jerusalem today is beyond it. Jerusalem in Jesus' day, some beyond it, and, and down to the left of it. Bethany and Bethphage. So that's where they came. They came around that way and up that way. In Bethany and Bethphage. Remember that. So they're near the mount called Olivet. He sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village ahead. And there as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. So an unbroken donkey. Uh, let me encourage you not to ever do that. Okay, It's not wise. A donkey that's never been ridden is not going to be an easy ride first time out. And yet, Jesus is going to sit on this donkey's back. Jesus is the donkey whisperer. It's the only way I can figure it out. The creature will have a sense of the Creator riding on His back. He says, go get this donkey, unridden, unbroken, untie it, And bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. And so these two went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. 
So they brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. So first thing to note in this interesting story, the donkey. Think about the donkey. Luke calls it a colt. The Greek word there is polos. And polos literally means a foal. A young, a young donkey, both Matthew and John tell us there was a young donkey, so a foal of a donkey. And again, Luke says it was unbroken. And this is an amazing, amazing fulfillment of Hebrew prophecy. It's one of those, one of those prophecies that is so specifically fulfilled. I love to share this one with people who are saying, ah, I don't really believe the Bible and all that stuff. I mean, it's just a lot of mumbo jumbo. Well, then explain to me how 500 years before Jesus, the prophet Zechariah said the following, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so now Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy exactly. He's doing exactly what Zechariah said Messiah would do. Now you might say, okay, I protest. Clearly, the scroll of Zechariah was available. Obviously, Jesus had read it. So he just set this whole thing up, staging this this triumphal entry as though he were fulfilling prophecy. Let me explain something to you. All prophecy is orchestrated. All of it is set up. It's one great big setup by the Lord for people to see what he's doing, what he's about. Prophecy is God saying, here's what I'm going to do. And then he does it. And then he says, see what I did? That's prophecy. Jesus is just doing what God does. Isaiah 46, verse 9, Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's no one like me. And we might say, okay, prove it. He says, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not yet been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Rick, why do you believe the Bible? So absolutely. Because no other book contains prophecies spoken and prophecies fulfilled like the Bible. It's astounding. And it's not the guesswork of Nostradamus. It is the absolute truth of God's Word. He says it, He does it, and He reminds us that He said He was going to do it and did it. And that's prophecy. So yes, Jesus staged this whole thing. But note this, Jesus staged this whole thing from before the foundations of the world. All of this was set in motion. This plan was set, was good to go. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't a plan B because plan A, the law, didn't work out. No, Jesus knew exactly what He was doing before anyone ever took a breath. He owns this prophecy, this 500-year-old prophecy of Zechariah. There are more we'll get to in a minute. But you see a king now riding a donkey's foal. And what this spoke of to the people and would speak in the culture was peace. A king riding a donkey. Not riding a horse, riding a donkey. Move it a little more slowly. Taking your time. And Jesus in His first coming, this is what He offered. He offered peace. From the moment he began his public ministry, his hands were outstretched for peace. He said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, I'm gentle, I'm humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. In essence, as a Jew, he would say, come to me and have Sabbath. Shabbat. 
One of the things I love about being in Israel, there are certain unifying things that you see among the Jewish people in Israel. And one of those is every Friday, late morning, early afternoon, all of a sudden, every single Israeli you run into will say the same thing to you. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Sabbath peace. Sabbath rest. Sabbath peace, they'll say. And even to this day, it's remarkable to me. And it's remarkable because Israel tends to be a primarily secular nation, and yet they still say Shabbat Shalom. They still keep Sabbath. And I was thinking about that and thinking on the one hand, I I would love to live in a culture where we see each other every Friday and say, hey, Shabbat Shalom. Wouldn't that be cool? Mm -hmm. And yet, if you think about it, what Shabbat Shalom really means is rest in peace. (laughs) (laughs) Tragically, right now, That's the state of things. There is a deadness to Sabbath among the Jewish people until they come to the life that is offered them in Jesus. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. John 14, 27. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. As He rides in on this donkey and He's he's proclaiming peace. That's the whole idea here. And as he crested the Mount of Olives, that was the proposal of Jesus' first coming to Israel in particular, peace. Now you all know, a king mounted on a charging steed, that's a different thing altogether. That kind of king is riding to war. And that's Messiah's second coming. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. John says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And when Jesus comes back the second time, it will not be down the slope of the Mount of Olives on a donkey, it will be on a mighty charger, calling out war and putting down all the rebellion of earth. That is not yet, but it is soon. Most were looking for a warrior Messiah. But interestingly, the crowds also saw in Jesus and in all the miracles and all that had been happening, the the buzz that was going on about Him, they saw a massive uh, massive idea that this was Messiah, a massive fulfillment of all these prophecies. He's doing what the prophets said. He's acting like the prophets said Messiah would act. By the way, where did the crowds come from? I mean, the obvious answer is Jerusalem. but, But the crowds were with Him by the time He crested the Mount of Olives. I never thought about this before. I always thought triumphal entry, he comes into the city and there's a triumphal parade, so people are just gathering around and praising the Lord. No, they're on the top of the Mount of Olives and there's already a huge crowd. They're already shouting Hosanna. It's already a party and a parade. How? Why? Well, the Bible tells us. The crowds had come over the crest of the Mount of Olives and were headed to the east because they wanted to see someone. They heard Jesus was there. They also heard someone else was there. Do you know who I'm talking about? Lazarus. John chapter 11, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead and word was out everywhere. And John 12 verse 9 says, the large crowd of the Jews then learned that Jesus was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus whom He raised from the dead. So the crowd floods over the top of the Mount of Olives. They go down toward Bethany. There's Jesus. There's Lazarus. Whoa, it's true. The guy's alive. He doesn't sink. He he was in the grave four days. It was amazing. And then, as Jesus gets on that donkey and starts up over the Mount of Olives, the crowds are already there. 
and they're starting to shout and they're starting to praise his name. I tell you what, as, as Spurgeon points out, the real remarkable thing here is that Jesus was, be, was able to hold off the crowds for three years. You may remember back when he fed the 5,000, they wanted to make him king right then. There were some talking about, let's take him by force and make him our king. He's the man. And Jesus slipped away from them at that time because it wasn't yet his time. Spurgeon writes, Among an excitable people, it was a wonder that they had not long ago taken him by force and made him a king. No one had yet appeared so like the Messiah of their prophets. No one had so well deserved the people's gratitude. If they had from the first accepted him as their monarch, and if they had watched every opportunity of doing him homage, nobody, nobody could have been surprised. So here comes Messiah the King, riding into Jerusalem on the donkey of Zechariah's prophecy. And that was too much. Here comes the declaration. Secondly, note this, the declaration, verse 36. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. By the way, that's a big deal, because in that day and age, especially for the average common citizen, you have one set of clothes. You had one coat. And they're putting it on the road before Jesus as He came along on this donkey. Verse 37, as soon as He was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord! Peace in heaven and glory in the highest! The people are shouting, they're declaring, Hosanna! Now, Luke doesn't use the word Hosanna. It's okay. Matthew, Mark, and and John, all three, do use the word Hosanna. They've got it covered. Hosanna in the highest. Matthew 21, verse 9, the crowds going ahead of Him and those who were following were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! The Son of David being a Messianic title. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, they shouted, Hosanna in the highest! Mark chapter 11, verse 9. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Again, Messianic. David was promised. God said, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to make you a kingdom. And one of your line is going to sit on the throne. And you know Jesus was of the line of David. Hosanna in the highest. John 12.13 They took the branches of the palm trees and they went out to meet Him. They began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Even, and listen to this, even they said, the King of Israel. He's here. Messiah, Son of David, King of Israel. Imagine this scene. Now you're in Jerusalem and you're looking back to the Mount of Olives. Here they come down the mount, throngs of people shouting Hosanna, calling out their king, and they're coming, by the way, from the way of the east. Now wait a minute. Those Bible students in that day and age might have said, Ezekiel said the Messiah is going to come from the east. And he did. Ezekiel chapter 43 says he will come by the way of the east, although Ezekiel was talking about Jesus' second coming. And yet there was something astir among the people. In fact, Matthew tells us the entire, the entire city of Jerusalem was stirred up by what was taking place here. Hosanna. Hosanna is the Hebrew Yashana. Yashana. Yasha is a Hebrew word, root word meaning salvation. It is the root of the name Yeshua, Jesus. Jesus' name, God saves. Yashana, God save us. Save us, they cried. What else did they cry out? Interesting, the Gospel writers all note this. 
the people cried, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All four of the writers point that out. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why are they singing this? Why are they saying this? It's the psalm of triumph. Psalm 118 is the psalm of great triumph. It is a psalm that is widely viewed as a prophecy of Messiah's coming into the land. Psalm 118.26 Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And I encourage you in this run-up to Resurrection Sunday, just a couple of weeks off here, read Psalm 118. Take the time to just go through it verse by verse and consider it. It's a remarkable, fantastic psalm. And it indicates three specific days. It indicates a day of coronation as we see in Jesus' coming. It indicates a day of crucifixion as I'll show you in a minute. And then it indicates another day of coronation when He comes finally in His second coming, all encased in that one remarkable psalm. Triumph and tragedy and triumph again. Here's the tragedy. Psalm 118, verse 27. The Lord is God. He's given us light. John chapter 1 tells us He is light. In Him, the light came into the world. And the darkness has not understood it. He is the light. The Lord has given us light. And then it says, Psalm 118.27 continues, Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. For all this adoration and orchestration and planning and setup, Jesus rode into Jerusalem to become the festival sacrifice. To be bound, as it were, to the cords of the altar. Oh, they would bind the lamb at Pesach, at Passover. They would bind him to the altar, to the four horns that would stick up on the altar. That's what the horns were for. You could rope off the animal on top of the altar and then slay it for sacrifice. Jesus, for his part, was not bound with cords to the altar. He was driven by nails to the cross to become the sacrifice. There's another prophecy connected to this. I'll tell you in a little bit. But as for now... The people are singing the coronation psalm. They don't know that the sacrifice is coming. They don't know that's the purpose of Him coming into Jerusalem at this time. What they know, what they see, is here's one who is the possible fulfillment of all our dreams. Our Messiah. Could this be Him? And so they shouted, Hosanna. Of course, there's a group of people that weren't too thrilled about it. And they were standing there on the side, the Pharisees in the crowd. They just stood there, you could say, muling it over. (laughs) Their heads were burrowed in the sand. They had no horse sense. They were done keyed up over the whole thing. All right, so right there. Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. What's going on here, man? You're a rabbi. You know better than this. Stop their worship. Stop their praise. This is no good, they say. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Mick Jagger? (laughs) Keith Richards? Charlie Watts? Really? The stone. You know what? They're going to bow before him, too. Because the truth is, the worship of Jesus as Lord is inevitable. And that's the point Jesus is making. It is so inevitable. You can shut people up. You can try and shut them down. You can close down churches. You can try and cut off worship. But if you shut the mouths of the people, the stones will begin to worship. The stones will... I would love to see that, by the way. Would that be awesome? 
that'll just, you know, rock concert of, of epic proportions. They start to sing. Listen, you cannot sidestep the worship of Jesus as God. Oh, you might think, well, I've done pretty good in my life so far. You know, I can sidestep this. I don't need this whole thing. Gang, you cannot sidestep the honor due Messiah because even the very created world knows He is worthy of all praise. Psalm 96.11 Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. You know, every time the waves of the sea crash on the shore, they are praising God. They are. Rick, you're weird. No. They are doing... Listen, they're doing what they were created to do. And that is worship to God. Any creature that does what it's created to do brings honor and glory to the Creator who created it. And for you and for me, guess what we were created to do? Worship. We were created to worship. Which is why, as we've talked about so many times in here, which is why we have movie stars. And... Musicians that we look up to. Why? They plunk on an instrument. What the deal? We have all kinds of people that we emulate or we look up to. I want to be like him. I want to be like her. Because you were created to worship. Problem is, they're going to let you down every single time. There is only one who won't. Only one who does not disappoint. Only one who in all of our sense of who we are and why we're created, only one worth worshiping. And that is Jesus Christ. And even the sea gets it. And even the fields, he says, Psalm 96, verse 12, the field, let the field exalt and all that's in it. And all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. Did you know that trees in their very silent state give off audible sound? They do. And did you know when the trees are waving in the wind, gang, it is worship. They're doing what they were made to do. I sometimes, on on windy days here on North Whidbey, I love to look out the windows and see the trees doing this. And I just think they're out there having a praise chorus right now. They're worshiping Jesus. Because they're doing what they were made to do. The Bible says, They will sing for joy before the Lord, for He is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. Psalm 148. I love this one. Verse 7. Praise the Lord from the earth, sea monsters and all deeps, fire and hail and snow and clouds and stormy wind, fulfilling His word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle. By the way, you're driving down to Oak Harbor. You know all the cows on the left side of the road as you head down the road there? And they... they and roll down your window and they're all going, whoa, they're praising God. (laughs) They are in worship to their Creator because they're doing what they were made to do. Mountains, hills, fruit trees, cedars, beasts, cattle, creeping things, winged fowl, all kings of earth, and all people, and no one is left out of that. Princes, judges of the earth, both young men and virgins, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord. For His name alone is exalted. His glory is above the earth and heavens. And Paul tells us the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there's no sidestep in it. I promise you all, that day is coming. And it will be the only day in all of history where followers of Jesus and non-believers alike 
will fall to the knee in worship. And the question is, do you choose to do so? Or will you be compelled to do so simply because the King is present? So, why is the worship of Jesus so offensive to some? What's the deal with that? Well, let me ask you, why was it offensive to the Pharisees? Tell them to be quiet! Shut them down! It's offensive to the Pharisees because the exaltation of Jesus Christ is a declaration of failure to all those who stand in opposition of Him. You oppose Him, you reject Him, you deny Him, and the very worship of Jesus reminds you you're on the wrong side. You're opposed to the One who is King and to the One who is coming to rule. But here's the most remarkable thing about the story for me. In the midst of all this coronation and adoration and exaltation and worship, suddenly the people look over and Jesus is weeping. Verse 41. When He approached Jerusalem, He saw the city and wept over it. Jesus breaks down. This is what I would call, number three, the devastation. Jesus is devastated. The Greek word there for wept. Jesus wept over the city. He's weeping. That word is a very specific word in the Greek, klyo, and klyo means to lament, to sob, to wail. It is not going too far to say that Jesus was heaving and sobs and weeping over Jerusalem in the midst of all this worship. You can imagine, if you will, the worship dying down and people going, somebody say something wrong? What's wrong with Jesus? This is supposed to be a good thing. And and, and perhaps Peter approaching the donkey going, "Um, Lord, (laughs) it's not a good time to be... what's, What's the deal? And Jesus said in verse 42, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Jesus is devastated. He knows the crowds don't get it. That the worship at this point is superficial. It is not informed worship. They don't know really why they're worshiping. They just, they just want to get out from under Rome. They just want someone to lead them out. And Jesus is the best guy to do it. And as they worship and praise, they are missing the fact that this is the day. Note that. He says, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. In this day. What was such a big deal about that day? Another Hebrew prophet by the name of Daniel specifically lined out this divinely calculated day, Daniel 9.25, where he said Messiah the Prince would enter Jerusalem on that day. And I can give you all the numbers on it, but on that actual calendar day, Daniel prophesied that Jesus, that Messiah... Whoever Messiah was, was going to enter Jerusalem on this day. And no one was thinking about that. Daniel said 483 Jewish calendar years, specifically from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which came to Nehemiah, to the coming of Messiah. Exactly 483 years. And to the day from the signing of that decree, 483 years later, we land on the Palm Sunday before the crucifixion. And Messiah 
rode into Jerusalem on that donkey as Zechariah prophesied. You see all the prophets now lining up, coming into place, coming to bear on this day. But instead of rejoicing over the day, Jesus is devastated because the day signified what Daniel said would come next. Daniel 9.26, the Messiah will be cut off, killed, and have nothing. And the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war and desolations are determined. Jesus, get this, Jesus is devastated. But not because of His coming crucifixion. Jesus is devastated because He knows the city is going to be desolated. His devastation, His weeping, His angst, His pain was for His people. Because they didn't know that in that day their salvation had come. And then Jesus says in verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Right there, on that day, Jesus offers a new prophecy. Very specific in nature. The fall of Jerusalem that would take place 37 years later in A.D. 70. And we know it took place exactly as Jesus described it happening. Josephus, in his history, Wars of the Jews, Josephus, who was there, wrote about that. He said, quote, All hope of escaping was now cut off from the Jews, together with their liberty of going out of the city. Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families, the upper rooms of women and infants that were dying by famine, and the lanes of the city were full of the dead bodies of the aged. The children also and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with the famine, and they just fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized them. Josephus writes, For a time the dead were buried, but afterwards, when they could not do that, they had them cast down from the wall into the valleys beneath. When Titus, going on his rounds along these valleys, Titus, the Roman commander, when he saw them full of dead bodies and the thick putrefaction running about them, he gave a groan and spreading out his hands to heaven called God to witness that this was not his doing. The Roman commander, when he saw the devastation of Jerusalem, far more than what he had planned, far more than what he was even thinking. You know Titus didn't even want to destroy the temple. That wasn't a pattern for Rome. Rome didn't go in and wipe out temples. Rome went in, took over people, and let them keep their gods because Rome figured there's all kinds of gods. But the temple is wiped out. The sanctuary gone. The city raised to the ground. Titus, looking at all this famine and and absolute disgust, says, "I, I didn't mean for that. This wasn't me. It's not my doing, Lord. Well, then whose doing was it? Jesus is devastated because His own people did not recognize the time of their visitation. It is one of the most horrible ironies in all of history that one week before the death of Jesus, the people are crying out, Yashana! God save us! God save us! Only to pierce the hands of the only one who could save them. But for all that horrible irony, what a glorious irony 
it was. Because the piercing of those hands offered us the triumph of salvation. Had His hands not been pierced, had Jesus not gone up on the cross, salvation would not have reached out to all of mankind, including Israel. There would be no hope. There would be no Palm Sunday. We wouldn't even be meeting in this barn today unless maybe it's a Kiwanis club or something. We wouldn't be here. And we certainly wouldn't be saved and we would be a hopeless lot in this world if not for the death of Jesus and the pierced hands. Luke 19.10 For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And let me say to you very clearly, don't you think for a minute that it was God's brutish delight to destroy. Because the very visitation of Jesus is proof positive that the Son of Man came into this world for one reason, and that reason is to save. That's why He came. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It's the heart of the Father. So that's the message. Riding on the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. But we're not done yet. I want you to go back and think about the donkey for a minute. Because there's an interesting old law, an arcane ancient commandment given way back in Exodus that has some bearing on this story. You might want to flip back there. Exodus chapter 13. Genesis, Exodus. So second book, easy to find. Chapter 13, beginning in verse... 11, Exodus 13, 11. Moses is writing to the people and he says, Now when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, as He swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. And the first offspring of every beast that you own, the males belong to the Lord. But every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck, and every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. This is so weird to me. He repeats it again in Exodus 34, verse 20. That you need to redeem the donkey with a lamb. And you need to redeem the firstborn of the son of man. You need to redeem firstborn boys with a lamb as well. Why? Why among all the animals on the planet does God single out the donkey alongside firstborn sons? (laughs) Similarity, perhaps? (laughs) I think the similarity between donkeys and you and me is remarkable. The Bible doesn't have a whole lot of good words to say about donkeys. Starts off talking about Ishmael, calls him a wild donkey of a man. So here's a guy out of control. That's a nice description. Genesis 16:12. A wild donkey of a man whose hand would be against his brothers, who would always be warring. Ishmael, the father of the Arabs today. So he's going to be a wild donkey. And that's in Genesis. Genesis 49, verse 14, talks about Issachar. And in old Jacob's interesting prophetic blessings that he he gave over his twelve boys, he's at his bed, he's about to die, and he calls Issachar in, and he gives him this blessing, Genesis 49.14, Issachar is a strong donkey. Thanks, Dad. (laughs) Lying down between the sheepfolds, 
And when he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. So here's two great pictures of donkeys so far. Out of control and beasts of burden, slavery. You go a little bit further on, get into the book of Numbers. Remember the story of Balaam and his donkey? Balaam's riding along, an angel appears in the path, Balaam doesn't see it, the donkey starts to go off the path, Balaam's beating the donkey, and the donkey goes, what's up? Can't you see there's an angel in the path? God gives the donkey language. And the whole point is how foolish Balaam is. The donkey, we know this, the donkey's just a picture of foolishness. You know? It's just kind of dumb. Out of control. Slavish. Go all the way down the line and track how donkeys are described and how they're presented in Scripture and it's negative. It's not good. Get all the way down to the third to last king of Judah, Jehoiakim. And listen to this. Jeremiah 22 verse 19 says he will be buried with a donkey's burial. Well, that's nice. What does that mean? Dragged off and thrown out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. That's what you do with a donkey. Kick them off to the side of the road and let their carcass rot. Nice. (laughs) Similarities? Throughout the Bible, it is bad news for donkeys. One after another, until the prophet Zechariah comes along and says, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just, endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey. Even on a colt. Not even a donkey. A baby donkey. A little donkey. The foal of a donkey. And suddenly, things are looking up for the donkey. <laughs> this is good. All the donkeys gathering, you know, I don't know, forming a union and saying, Zachariah, he's our man. G.K. <laughs> Chesterton wrote a great poem called The Donkey. Check this out. When fishes flew and forests walk and figs grew upon thorn, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born, with monstrous head and sickening cry and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody on all four-footed things, the tattered outlaw, the earth of ancient crooked will, starve, scourge, deride me, I am dumb, I keep my secret still. Fools, for I also had my hour, one far fierce hour and sweet. There was a shout about my ears and palms before my feet. The donkey. What's remarkable back in Luke is what is said in verse 31. Why are you untying it? Jesus said, you shall say, the Lord has need of it. This little donkey's full. Its neck was not broken. Why? Because the Redeemer had come. He had a Redeemer. He had redemption. And so this foal would carry the Lord into Jerusalem because the Lord had need of it. Brothers and sisters, family, friends, the Lord has need of you. And you may think of yourself as a donkey. Translate that into the King James Version. You know what I'm saying. (laughs) You may think of yourself as worthless. You may think, what does the Lord have to do with me? Now I hear that from Christians. We talked about just recently the whole idea of spiritual gifts. Well, I don't have very many spiritual gifts. Hey, you have a mina. Every single one of us has the Gospel. But regardless of who you are, followers of Jesus, 
Hear your Lord. The Lord has need of you. There's not a one of you the Lord doesn't have need of. Non-believers. Those of you who maybe you don't go to church, you don't really know what you believe, or maybe you have some belief, I don't know. Let me just say to you very clearly, the Lord has need of you. The Lord has need of you. He wants to save you. He wants to save your neck. The Lord has need. What a a remarkable thing. And all He asks in return of us donkeys is a declaration. Yashana. God save me. God save me. But not just a declaration of the lips. A declaration of the heart that says, God, I need you to save me. God, I want you to save me. Romans 10.9 tells us if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It is that simple. It is not religion. It is just confession. It is declaration from the heart. I believe in You, Lord. God, save me by Jesus Christ. That's all He asks. By the way, note this. The people didn't cry out, peace on earth, did they? Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven. And glory in the highest. It's the only place in the entire Bible where that phrase is used. You won't see peace in heaven written anywhere else. You'll see it described. And we can assume that there is peace where the Prince of Peace resides. There is peace in the presence of God. Peace in heaven, absolutely. That's why I want to be there. I know there's peace there. However, this is the only time that a people actually say, peace in heaven. And they say it In the same sentence as they're crying out, God save us, because you see, God is the only one who can offer you peace in heaven. Here's how He did it. Colossians 1.19 It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness, that is the fullness of God, to dwell in Jesus. And through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, peace in heaven. I, I think about that. I think, what good is peace on earth anyway? Really? What good is peace on earth? Let's say we could gather all of the great humanitarian minds of the world, pull them together and say, alright, develop a plan and we'll follow it. And suddenly for a hundred years on earth we have peace. Big deal. What if we could do two hundred years? So what? How about a thousand years of peace on earth? Great. Compared to peace in heaven? I'd rather be there. Compared to peace for all eternity? Peace on earth is a passing thing, gang. And this brings me back to... It's where we have to end. The devastation. And I want to end here. But that's where the triumphal entry of Jesus ended. It didn't end with a shout of praise. It ended with the Savior in tears. Devastated, weeping, mourning for a city that would reject His Lordship. This is the dark side of Palm Sunday where Jesus' heart ended up. And verse 42 says, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. Why? Because as verse 44 tells us at the end, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You know that's today. You know this is it. This is the time of your visitation. 
And I, I am dead serious on this. This is not a pastor trying to drum up people to come up for an altar call. In fact, I'm not going to give you one. This is it. You have no idea how much time you have. But I can guarantee you in this moment, on this day, Jesus Christ says to you, I have need of you. This is the day of His visitation. Not tomorrow, not two weeks, not a year from now. Right now, today, if you feel tossed out, kicked to the side of the road, broken down by your own devastation, maybe your your own choices, or maybe something someone's done to you. If it's all new to you, Remember, it was all new to the donkey. He'd never been ridden before. What's up? What's going on here? And I'll tell you what, if it's all new to you, the Lord knows how to gently guide you and lead you forward. I think one of the things that freaks people out about becoming Christians or giving their life to the Lord is like, what do I have to do? Nothing. Nothing. He'll show you. He'll lead you. He will guide you. You just trust Him. That's your part. Maybe you're all tied up. You notice that? He finds a little donkey that's tied up. Has to be untied. Jesus does that. He wants to set you free for His purposes. You see, well, I told you there was another prophecy. There's one more. This is the one, Cheryl, that I saw last night. You know, We're sitting in bed, I've got my computer, and I went, Oh! And I'm typing furiously. She's like, What? I'm like, Just send it. Yeah! <laughs> One more prophecy given 2,000 years before Jesus. So this one's 4,000 years old, roughly. It's given by Jacob. Remember Jacob blessing his sons and Iskar was there. Well, when he comes to bless his son Judah, who is of the line, Jesus is of that line of Judah all the way down through David down to Jesus. He says the following, Genesis 49.11, He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, and he washes his garments in wine and his robe in the blood of grapes. I can imagine Judah and his brothers going, well, I guess it's better than Issachar's donkey thing. (laughs) What does this mean? He ties his foal to the vine, and then he washes in grape juice? What? In wine? And you and I know exactly what that means. He rode that foal into Jerusalem. And from there, He was washed in His own blood on the cross. Now let me ask you this morning, are you the donkey's colt? Are you tied to the vine? See, the vine is Jesus. And His blood is what heals and His blood is what saves. And as you and I are tied to the vine, connected to the vine who is Jesus Christ, we have our salvation. The Lord has need of you.